Well, this morning we're going to uh, take a few moments and talk about living with the end in mind. We will pick up today, if you're reading with us through the New Testament this year, pick up where you left off on Friday in 2 Peter chapter 3. And let me mention while you're turning there, and by the way, thanks to those of you who are joining us online, also those that are up in the venue, uh, even though we're kind of scattered this morning, glad that we can all be together as we spend time in God's Word. As you're turning to 2 Peter 3, I'll mention to you that next Sunday will be the last in our New Testament series uh, for this year. I know you're probably shocked to hear me say that I will not be preaching through Revelation in December. just didn't seem to fit, fit uh, thematically, but we will come back uh, after the first year and cover Revelation, so keep on reading Uh, Go ahead and finish. If you've gotten this far, you can certainly finish the next few weeks. Well, Peter's reminding uh, the church of what is coming, uh, what's going to happen when the end comes. You know, sometimes when I'm studying, I get a little bit distracted. It's not ADD, it's just curiosity. And when I was studying this passage this week, one particular day I stopped and I thought, well, I'm just going to Google. And I Googled movies on the end of the world. And of course, there are hundreds, and they are pretty far-fetched, and some are downright Uh, ridiculous. Fortunately, we have an infallible authority on on what is going to happen. Interesting, though, when I googled uh, the end of the world, I also stumbled across an article by Business Insider. I don't know why they're an expert on this, but Business Insider had an article, the 14 places to go if the world is going to end. That's what I thought. (laughs) Do you need 14 places to go when the world's going to end? You know, the only good place I could think of going when the world ends is heaven, but that wasn't on the list. Uh, Number one was Antarctica. That's interesting. And they do tell you if you're going to go to Antarctica, you have to take your own food supply and you can hunker down in one of the abandoned expedition huts. I think I'd rather experience the end of the world than do that. There were all kinds of remote and, uh, and distant, desolate locations, islands and stuff like that. There are actually two locations in the U.S. Maybe someone after the service can explain that to me, or if you're watching online, you can email and explain it to me. Two U.S. locations, Denver and Kansas City. Well, thank the Lord for the scriptures, right? Second Peter was written by the apostle of that name. He was the, uh, the leader of the 12, if you will, the head of the Jerusalem church. And as you read through First and Second Peter, as you've done over this last week, you can sense, especially when we get to this final chapter in Second Peter, there is a great sense of urgency because he knows his end is near. If you remember back in John 21, when Jesus appeared on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection and, and he restored Peter, he also informed Peter of the kind of death that he would die. And Peter knows that he is about to be martyred. He is, at this point, uh, imprisoned in Rome. He is facing execution or crucifixion uh, under Nero. So these are his final words. It's his last attempt to strengthen the church, to to strengthen the, the brethren. And what's weighing most heavily on his heart? It's interesting in this last chapter that the thing that is really burdening him is, is that there are false teachers who are leading believers astray. And these false teachers, in this case, are promoting an immoral, ungodly lifestyle by denying the return of Christ. They're denying that that Jesus is coming and that sin is going to be judged. And so this is Peter's last chance to to strengthen them and prepare them for what's to come. Look at the first three verses here in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, 
In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So he begins in verse 1 and says, look, the reason I'm writing you is to stir you up. And it's, it's the same kind of understanding we get in, in Hebrews chapter 10 when we're told as the body of Christ to meet together on a regular basis to stir one another to love and good deeds. He's, he's saying, I'm stirring you up. I'm trying to um, poke you into mental awareness. I'm trying to make sure that you're aware mentally. The sincere mind is the idea that your mind is healthy and sound. Basically, he's reminding them, look, you need to be people of the book. You need to know what God's Word says. You need to spend time in God's Word and build it into your life and, and memorize it and meditate on it so that you know exactly what Scripture says. And he says, I'm stirring you up to a sincere mind, and I'm giving you some reminders. I'm trying to refresh your memory, poking at you. If you've gotten sleepy, if you've gotten lazy spiritually, poking at you to wake you up. And get you back where you need to be. Verse 2, he says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Now, again, they're facing unholy false teachers. He's saying you need to go back and look at the predictions of the holy prophets. What's he referring to? Well, the prophets warned of coming judgment. They made predictions of this coming uh, day of the Lord. In fact, 88 times in Scripture, we're told about the day of the Lord. It's mentioned, what is the day of the Lord? It's the time uh, when Jesus returns, it's the time of the tribulation, the time of the millennial reign, the time when after that he will uh, judge and the earth will be destroyed. 88 times that's mentioned in Scripture. 53 of those times are in the prophets. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of those prophets. And, and these people knew the prophets. They didn't have the entire New Testament that we do today. But he's saying, look, remember what the prophets said 53 times. They warn you of this time that was coming. And he mentions not only the prophets, but the commandments of the Lord through the apostles. What is that Jesus' words that the apostles reiterated to the people? And the apostles in the New Testament in 260 chapters mentioned the second coming 300 times. So what's he saying to them? Look, when you, when you hear these false teachers, you need to know the word. You need to know the Old Testament. You know the prophets. You need to know the New Testament. You need to know the words of Jesus. You read this week in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 these words, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing we will face, no challenge we will face that we don't have the answer to, we don't have the hope for, because his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, listen, through the knowledge of him who called us. That's where we have everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us. We have to read the word of God. We, we, we have to heed the word of God. God's word is important and reliable and really the only source we have to live life the way that God intended for us to live life. And so he's reminding them they need to be people of the book. They need to understand the word of God. Verse 3, he says, look, know this. Scoffers are going to come. They're going to mock you. They're going to, to ridicule you. They're going to make fun of your belief in the second coming. They're going to say it's not going to happen. You're a fool to, to believe that. Why are they doing that? He says, scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. 
You know why they mock the return of the Lord, why they mock judgment coming on sin? is because they have to convince themselves there's no judgment so they can do as they please. If you repeat a lie, even to yourself, often enough, you begin to believe it. And they want to pursue their own lustful desires and think there's no consequence. They want to pursue their, their sinful desires without restraint. And so they're mocking those who believe that Jesus is, in fact, going to come again and that sin is going to be judged so that they can go on following their own sinful desires. And, and please understand that same thought is prevalent in our day. There are few who believe in the literal return of Jesus, even some who claim to be believers that don't believe in the literal return of Jesus. And even for people you may encounter who believe uh, that there is a God or some kind of higher power, they don't believe he really has anything to do with the reality of life and, and how we're called to live. They don't think he's going to intervene in history. That, that's what Peter covers next. Look in verse 4, down verse 4 through 7. These scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he says in verse 4, here's, here's the stinging question that the scoffers throw at you to cause you to doubt. The stinging question is this, where is he? Where is he? You said he's coming again, all this time has gone by, and, and he's not returned. And, and their belief is what we would call today uniformitarianism. That's a big word, isn't it? Let me tell you what uniformitarianism basically means. Ain't nothing never changing. Ain't going to change. What happened in the past and what's happening in the present is going to be the same thing that happens in the future. Everything goes on as it always has. God is absent He's never intervened before. He's never judged before. So it, it's not going to happen. It will never be. But you see in verse 5, he immediately addresses that faulty assumption of an absent God. First of all, he says, look, God stepped into nothing and disorder and created order from that. And, and let me be very clear because we can get really confused by the things that are taught in our educational system. He's not talking about some long evolutionary process that occurred. When God created, it was instantaneous, it was explosive, it was a literal six-day creation of a mature and complete universe. There was no evolution that happened after that point. Look, look what he says, it was formed out of water and through water by the Word. What is the Word? Well, you see in Genesis, God simply spoke His Word and the world was created. But we also know the word refers to Jesus. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that he was there. He was a part of creation. All things were made by him and through him and for him. And all things are sustained by him. Second thing he points out about this incredible belief that God is not going to come and things will continue as they've continued. He says, first of all, look at the fact that God created. But second of all, verse 6, God calls the flood. Just as water played a role in creation by God's command, 
so it did in the destruction that occurred in Noah's day. And, and you recall that in Noah's day, there were also mockers and doubters and scoffers, and that went on for 100 years. Noah spent 100 years building that ark all the while listening to the mockers and the scoffers. But Peter is saying, look, God not only designs, but God controls the natural processes. And so in verse 7, he says, look, God is also going to control the process when the world is once again destroyed. He says the heavens and earth are stored up for destruction. What does that mean? They're, they're on layaway. It means the heavens and earth are just waiting for God's word. And when God's word happens, there will be a destruction. The first thing that will happen is the ungodly will be destroyed. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. But then after that, the heaven and earth is going to be the heavens and earth are going to be destroyed. And it's interesting when you think about it, it's pretty much going to happen in the same way the flood happened. When the flood happened, rains came down, but also the waters of the deep came up. The earth is going to be destroyed by fire. Guess what? Look in Revelation. Fire is going to rain down, but here's what else is going to happen, I believe. You know, the earth we live on is a very thin crust over a core that is a flaming, boiling, liquid fire of 12,400 degrees. God will have no problem destroying this earth and all the elements as fire is raining down and as that core erupts and destroys everything. God will, Peter is saying, step into creation again. And those who want to live their own way, those who want to ignore that God is coming, that judgment is coming, they're trying to imply, or the word he says is they deliberately overlook the fact that God has intervened. And they say that God hasn't and he won't. Why? Because they've got to keep God distant. They have to convince themselves and in their own minds, they've got to keep him distant and say he doesn't exist or he won't do anything so that they can keep following their own evil desires. The early church, we, we've talked about this before, was excited. They were ready. They were waiting. They were anxious. They had been told that Jesus would come again for them, and they were ready for that. But days had gone by, and months had gone by, and, and years had gone by. And, and all this time, there were people who mocked and false teachers who caused them to doubt. They asked the question, well, where is he? Almost as if they were saying, okay, we'll, we'll accept the fact that you believe in God and, and God set all this in motion, but listen, he forgot about you. He set it in motion, then he went to lunch and forgot about you. And he's left you on your own. And so Peter writes to encourage them and to reassure them. Look, look in verses 8 and 9. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. The Lord... With the Lord, one day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. What's he saying? We see time against time. All we know is the finiteness of time, and we compare a time or a season against time as we know it, but God sees time against eternity. There's no restriction on God's time. We're, we're by nature, he says in verse 8, listen, we're by nature impatient, but God is by nature full of patience. A day is like a thousand years. He's full of patience. He's full of grace. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow. To fulfill his promise is some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's schedule is controlled by his patience. He's not late. He, he's not loitering. He has immense patience, and he is enduring much to give everyone the opportunity. 
Noah endured a hundred years of, of mocking and, and, and of doubt. Can you imagine how hard that was for a man to endure all of his neighbors talking about how crazy he was and how foolish he was for a hundred years? God has endured even more than that because he wants to be sure that everyone has an opportunity to reach repentance. You know, if anyone ever says to you, if you're trying to share your faith with someone and anyone ever says to you, I can't accept a God who would send people to hell. He's not loving. Take them right here to verse 9. Show them verse 9. God's not wanting anyone to perish. The, the only people going to hell are depraved, wicked people who reject the only remedy for sin, and that's the Lord Jesus. God doesn't send them to hell. They, they go because they refuse to repent. He waits. But he also waits on us. Do we remember that people around us are going to spend an eternity in hell? His patience is for us as well to fulfill our responsibility to get the gospel to those people. Verse 10 there's a time coming when his patience will run out. And verse 10 tells us the day of the Lord will come like a thief. A thief doesn't announce his coming. A thief doesn't come when we expect him. The, the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. You ever got close enough to a really big fire that you can hear the roar as that fire is building? It's going to be a roar like anything we could ever imagine hearing. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That's how hot that fire is going to be. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is he saying? Verse 10, he's saying, make no mistake. He is certainly coming. He's coming quickly. He's coming unannounced. Many will be unprepared, but there will be no more opportunity to repent. Well, what, what is this day of the Lord? It's, it's the, the intervention of human affairs. Exactly what these false prophets are saying is not going to happen, that God is going to come and he is going to intervene and there is going to be judgment. The day of the Lord is a climactic act of God and several things are going to happen. First and foremost, his name will be vindicated. The scoffers will no longer be scoffing, but God's name and his word will be vindicated. He will destroy his enemies. He'll reveal his glory. I'm telling you, the fireworks are going to happen like, unlike anything that we could ever imagine, anything that we've ever seen, and his glory will be revealed in that. He's going to destroy the world that we corrupted, and then he's going to establish his kingdom. And so Peter says, look, this is what's going to happen. That certainly begs the question down in verse 11 and 12, so, so what do we do? But, but I want you to notice in verse 11, it's not, it's not a question. Look in your Bible. Look at that sentence. It's not a question. There's no, no, no question mark there. It's an exclamation. Here's how it actually would, would read. Since all these temporal things, since the earth is going to be destroyed, what an astounding, incredible people you should be as you live in godliness and holiness. It's not a question what kind of people ought you to be, it's what 
an astounding, incredible people you ought to be as you live in godliness and holiness. By the way, just very quickly, just a side note, godliness and holiness. Godliness really refers to the the attitude of your heart and mind. When godliness rules your heart, when that's your attitude, then your actions will be holiness. When you have a mindset of godliness, when your desire is to be as close to God as you can and as much like Christ as you can be, then holiness will rule your behavior. What is he saying? Look, don't waste your life on, on the world, on worldly success. It's all going to burn. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Don't love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. He's saying don't waste your life on the things of the world. Focus on holy conduct. Focus on godliness. And remember that you don't belong in this world. Knowing that Jesus is coming, you should be focused on the eternal. What's, what's eternal? Scripture only mentions three things that will last for all of eternity. The Word of God. Anything you can do to build the Word of God into your heart and into your life will go with you into eternity. The Word of God will last until eternity. Godly character will last into eternity. And the souls of men You want to invest in eternity? You invest in those three things. The word of God, your character, your godly character, the godly character of those that God gives you under your care, either as a parent or as one who has opportunity to disciple, and the souls of men, the people that you can share the gospel with that will accept the truth of the gospel and and belong, make it to heaven. He's saying, look, you, you, you should be, as you live in godliness and holy character, you should be recognized by the world. People should know to whom you belong. This last week I received a a, a text with a picture of my son Jordan's third child, Lucy, Lucy Luann, bless her heart. Oh, I think they're listening this morning too. Well, um, anyway, I got looking and it was a picture of Jordan in scrubs and, and I guess his wife Carrie had made a little pair of scrubs for Lucy, but but they're both in scrubs right down to the booties and the, and the hat. And I looked at that and I looked at her face and I, I'd never noticed it before. But she, uh, of all the four children, she has an uncanny resemblance to her father, to Jordan. But that's not really shocking, is it? You expect the children to look like their parents, right? Listen, those who are born of God should grow to resemble their father. That's what Peter is trying to get across here. He says we're waiting for and we're hastening the day of his coming. When you wait, that doesn't mean you get comfortable or you get lazy. It's it's an active working as you wait for his coming. You ever noticed, um, if you are still working, you ever notice when, when your job on a particular day is really, really busy, the day goes by fast, doesn't it? Well, Peter is saying here, look, if you're really focused on on pleasing God, if you're anxious for his coming, if you're focused on pleasing him and you're working for the kingdom and and you're you're doing his will, you're anxious and ready, his coming is going to be hastened for you. Waiting is expecting. We can't afford when we're waiting for his coming, we can't afford to get distracted. I was talking to someone 
this week. They were asking me a little bit, not someone from our church body, asking me a little bit about what I do and how my week is structured. I said, you know, I have to be really careful because things can get really busy around here, and some weeks get so busy I can hardly remember what day it is, but I can't afford to get distracted because you know what happens every week for me? Sunday. I have to stay focused. I can't get distracted because Sunday's coming. He's saying, look, as you wait, don't be distracted. We're waiting for the day. We're, we're hastening the day. What does that mean? We're, we're wanting. We're eager. We're ready for our Lord to return. Here's a quick word about hastening the day. If you're wanting and eager and you're tired of all the junk in this life and you say, oh, Lord Jesus, I wish you'd come, let me, let me tell you what it will take for him to come. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, This gospel shall be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. And the picture of, of heaven in Revelation 7, 9 tells you a little bit about the work that we have to do. John writes these words, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, listen, from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages were standing before the throne in the Lamb of God. That's what's going to hasten his coming. When we get the job done, verse 9, he's patient, he's waiting, not just for them to come into the kingdom, but for us to tell them how to come into the kingdom. And we can hasten his coming. Well, verse 13, he says, The end of this destruction is this, for, for us, for those who are believers, after the earth is destroyed, he says, according to his promise, a new heavens and a new earth is going to be built. Even better than the garden that Adam and Eve started in. The, the purpose of the judgment and destruction is to establish a perfect place where the righteousness of God, the complete righteousness of Christ, is going to dwell in us forever. Look at the final words, starting in verse 14 through the end of this third chapter of Second Peter. Therefore... I've explained all this to you. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, talking about Paul's letters, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that there are people who are going to twist the truth and try to lead you astray, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what does he say? You need to be diligent. You need to prepare yourself. He, he says that when Christ comes, you need to be without spot or blemish. You know, that, that kind of refers back or pictures back to the Old Testament sacrifice. When, a, let's say, a lamb was brought uh, to be sacrificed, that lamb had to be without spot, without, without spot, without blemish, without, probably without spot too, without birth defect, no bone broken, had to be perfect. And he's saying that we, like those Old Testament sacrifices, when we're presented to Christ, 
we want to come without spot or blemish. We want to be not tainted by sin. And you say, well, well how is that possible? I, I'm a sinner. I, I still sin. No, you're not a sinner. Not if you're in Christ, but you still sin. Yes. But what does Jesus say about our sin? What does the scripture say about our sin? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and, what's the next word? Cleanse. We're without spot, without blemish. Isaiah 118, the Lord says, come, let us reason. About what? About your sin. Don't, don't turn and, and run from me when you're in sin. Come, let us reason. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be what? White as snow. So we're able to come before Christ when he returns without spot or blemish if we are confessing and repenting from sin. John, you'll read this week in 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 28, John says, look, if you continue in him, if you're walking with him, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but if you're walking with him, if you're obeying him, when you sin, it will be very natural for you because the Spirit of God lives in you, will convict you of sin, it will be very natural for you to confess and repent. When you sin and you get off course or turn from the path and the Spirit convicts you and you confess and repent and you continue walking with him, John says, if you continue in him, when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in his coming. Can you imagine when Jesus comes, if you haven't been living for him and you know that you're living in, in sin, you're going to shrink back. You're going to try to hide when he comes. But John says, no, if you will continue in him, you can have confidence and not shrink back at his coming. So be diligent. Prepare yourself. Verses 16 through 18, don't be fooled. Know the word. A, a new nature has to be fed and nourish. You, you can't grow in your relationship with Christ if you're not being fed and nourished. You need to be on your guard against false teaching. Well, well, how do I recognize false teaching? You know the truth. If you recognize what is true, you can recognize the counterfeit. And, and yes, it's work. I almost laughed when, when you read that Peter said, hey, you know, Brother Paul's letters, they're kind of hard to understand sometimes. They are. You have to dig in. You have to be committed. Verse 18 is the key. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. He's saying know the word and then live the word. Practice living like Jesus. Grow in grace and knowledge. Learn all that you can about the Lord Jesus and how he lived and how he calls us to live. And then live like that. Can I give you a word of caution here, especially to those who are online? I know all of us get online and we listen to different preachers and, and, and connect with different ministries. There are a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, a lot of ministries today that are not standing strong on the authority of Scripture. You need to know this book. You better pay attention when you're listening. You better pay attention to what's being said and make sure it lines up with the truth. Well, Peter in this, in this letter of, of uh, the second letter that he's written and specifically in this chapter, he's covered, covered four themes or given four uh, words of instruction. Obviously, you see that he said you need to recognize false teaching. You need to grow in your faith. You need to grow and depend on your knowledge of Scripture and you need to keep your eyes on Jesus because he's coming. 
And you want to be ready. You want to be prepared when he comes. Well, four quick thoughts or questions for you this morning. The first, very simply, is this. What do you want to do with your life knowing it's all going to burn? How are you going to invest your life knowing that what we see and what we know, what we experience here in the temporal is all going to burn, it's going to be dissolved, it's going to be destroyed? What do you want to do with your life understanding that? Here's another question. If Jesus returned today, would you be confident? Would he find you living a, a holy and, and godly lifestyle? Is there any reason you wouldn't be ready? And then lastly, un- understanding that the word of God and, and godly character and soul, the souls of men are the things that are going to survive into eternity. As you think about Jesus coming, as you think about going into eternity with him and then all those who are evil being destroyed, as you think about Jesus coming and going to heaven, you going to heaven, who are you going to take with you? Who needs to go? Family member, friend, neighbor, coworker? Who's going with you? The Quechua Indians in Guatemala had a particular member of the tribe that was designated as the daykeeper. The daykeeper's purpose was to make sure that every uh, member of that tribe was living each day well and making every moment count. The daykeeper would go to a member of the tribe that, that wasn't living appropriately in that tribe or relationally in that tribe, or, or he would go to any member of that tribe that was being lazy, not fulfilling his responsibility, and his job was to encourage, the daykeeper's job was to encourage them to live each day well and to make each moment count. That was the daykeeper's role. That's our daykeeper. That's our daykeeper. We need to consistently be spending time in this book, in his words, to make sure that we're obedient, to make sure that we're making the most of every moment, that we're living every day well, so that when he comes, we won't shrink back at his coming. We'll be ready to meet him.